Welcome to When Movies Were Good, a laid-back discussion about all your favourite films from the silent era up until 1959. You can hear our channel's content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow all new updates and events on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please give us a thumbs up or a good review, whatever your favourite podcast channel allows for. It helps to get us in front of more people. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, and welcome back to this edition, a new edition of When Movies Were Good. Uh, We just recorded our other podcast right before this, but I'm going to do it again and congratulate my special guest star co-host Matt on his beautiful son, he and his lovely wife Meg on their beautiful son, little Harry Harrison. Ill, thanks so much. Yeah, um, uh, Harrison, he's uh, uh, a real gem. He's uh, so, such a cute little boy. and He's cute. Yeah, he's gorgeous, yeah. Yeah, we just feel I'm really lucky to have him. Yeah, no, he's absolutely – he was um, sort of napping by us before, but um, now he's upstairs with mum still resting up there. So um, we've just got – we're down – we're recording here at Matt's house today. So we've got a cat in the bedroom. We've got two Dush hounds. We've got us. We've got Harry and Meg. So it's a full house today. Yeah, it is – yeah, it is uh, quite a uh, collection of uh, different life forms in the, in the one roof. Um, we just need a goldfish. Yeah, but it's a beautiful area of town. It's not um, – I grew up in a very different area of Melbourne and then for the last 20 years or so I've been living in another area, which is where we record from in my flat and where Matt used to live, where he sort of grew up. And now we're in the area sort of – what would you say, this north – it, it, it's like sort of northeast, northeast, north to northeast. Yeah, so still um, a sequel of... to North by Northwest, <laughs> North by Northeast, and it's very, um, very like you know, flora. There's a lot of trees, and I mean Melbourne. I mean Australia, just in general, has got a lot of trees and stuff in the cities anyway. But um, yeah. To be honest, though, speaking as um, naturally because I'm the uh, husband of a, uh, a newborn mother who's nursing, I'm doing a lot of grocery shopping, and uh, the, perhaps the bigger thing for me is that we have a Woolworths within three minutes of here. Yeah, definitely. And I went and availed myself of some of the local shops in the um, the main street up the road and um, did a little bit of recycle shopping, which was good. Um, so we are here today to do, I wouldn't say a versus, we never do verses as such. We always just say which one of the movies that we maybe liked better or worse, but this is a good versus one to do because it's Ben-Hur, 1959 versus Spartacus, 1960. So two epic films, two incredibly famous films, two films that have been remade just in the 2000s, like quite recently, there's been newer versions of these films made. I've sort of steered clear of them. If I do get a chance to watch them, I probably would just to see if I could compare it. But this sort of the late, so how Spartacus was made in 1959. So we let it get into our, um, when movies were good time frame. These two movies, um, if you want to say epic, they're about as epic as it gets. Yeah, they were. They're the standard by which epic is measured. Uh, they they were built w- with the pioneering early widescreen technology. Uh, every extra dollar of their studios was thrown into extravagant costuming and. Uh, and look, the people and that they had in the films. I mean, marquee actors. 
yeah, every like the sets, the the stories themselves. I mean, it's not just a simple story that you know. Yeah, well, it was kind of a unique um, period of time because uh, sort of late fifties, the film industry was on was on its knees. They'd been um, uh, suffering in competition to radio and uh, later TV for mm-hmm. a while, and uh, so using their um, their big reserves, they they thought um, some studios that uh, their uh, best way to uh, cl- reclaim their dominance was to do these um, huge epics uh, with, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, where they took these massive, often sort of biblical proportion stories with biblical proportion sets and do big fight scenes and charity scenes and and uh, as far as um their uh, how their uh, wiser was financially. Uh, <laughs> uh, Probably uh, not always the uh, the best thing. Even though some of them made profits, some some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, for the people who viewed it then, and retrospect, we do have these um, great spectacular pieces of, uh, of cinematic uh, history. Yes, of uh, uh, gladiator celluloid. <laughs> so let's um, let's discuss uh, Ben Hur first. So. It's considered a um, religious epic film um, directed by William Wyler, who is a very famous director who we've spoke about before many he a time. He did Roman Holiday, and mm-hmm. so this is a very different type of Colosseum. He, yes, well, he did. But it's actually amazing, the directors back then, the sorts of films that they would direct. I mean, often now, you know, like, it's not that I watch these films, but you'd sort of take into account like Marvel and DC, and you normally have, you know, the same kinds of directors directing things it's kind of a rarity you know that you'd have directors sort of one time they're directing a musical the next time they're directing science fiction but back in this golden era of directors they would you know if they wanted to do the project they would go ahead and do the project no matter what it was so um okay so we have well that was partly legacy of the studio system that's that's very true. Um, so it was produced by Sam Zimbalist, uh, obviously starring the great Charlton Heston as the title character. Now, this technically was a remake or a reimagining, as they say these days, of the 1925 silent film with a similar title, and it was adapted from Lou Wallace's 1880 novel, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. It was a similar story with the Ten Commandments um, because they had that massive version directly Directed by DeMille in the 20s and he redid the project mm-hmm. again with Charlton Heston in the 50s and it's no doubt that Charlton Heston did get this part because of his success in the Ten Commandments. Yes, and Charlton... Uh, it, it did yeah. come after the Ten Commandments, Yeah, Ten yeah. Commandments was like 55 or so. Yeah. Um, so Ben-Hur is, he's a fictional hero. His name's Judah Ben-Hur. He's a Jewish nobleman who's falsely accused and convicted of the attempted assassination of a Roman governor. And then he becomes <clears> – sorry, of course, my voice has to fail on me now. Um, <coughs> Do you want me to hit the pause button? Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. And we're back. Um, thank you for waiting. <laughs> I was eating this cookie, well, before we started recording, and it wasn't quite – it made the decision it wanted to then start going down my throat, the crumb. Thanks for that. At least it was a gluten-free crumb. That's true. Matt actually did a great job supplying some gluten-free cookies for me today. So back to our story. Um, the attempted assassination of a Roman governor and he becomes enslaved by the Romans 
and then he becomes a successful charioteer and many other things happen in his life as well. So, um, you know, it's a story of lots of of different things. I mean, the film sort of takes a lot of artistic license compared to the original book. Um, but this well, thing, I mean, in Spartacus, they, they take a lot of factual license compared <laughs> to the actual fact. Yeah, and <laughs> um, it's um, look, this film. They often say that films are bigger than Ben Hur, or anything's bigger than Ben Hur, because at the time the filming commenced on. May the 18th, 1958, and wrapped on January the 7th. So that's a long time. That's a long shoot for a film, 1959, with shooting lasting from 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week. Um, They did shoot uh, part of this film in Italy. And as Matt said, they decided to produce the film in a widescreen format We had camels, we had horses, there were extras, there were massive, like even the stadium where the famous chariot race happens. I mean, all of that had to be built. And look, in a sort of very um, sceptical sort of modern looking at films, oh, that looks fake, whatever. And okay, whatever, maybe it does, maybe the statues, you know, on sort of like digital TVs now don't look that great. But back then in, in a cinema, I think the audience would have been blown away. Yeah, well, like, even uh, now, like, um, for example, the Harry Potter films were the uh, my whole world when I was young. I was that generation, mm-hmm. but and some of them I've seen, uh, seen now, and, like, I'm thinking, okay, the, um, uh, it, like, it's easy now to think, okay, some of the uh, sets uh, look a little um, tackier or this um, line doesn't come off quite as well as I thought it did when I was a kid, but then I remember when I was a kid, I was just blown away, so, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and I much prefer sort of physical special effects to digital ones, because I just find digital ones are boring, like, you know, I prefer the, you know, if we look at the Star Wars era, I mean, I grew up with the original trilogy of the Star Wars, and the modern stuff just doesn't interest me, I much prefer the puppet Yoda to the digital Yoda. And sometimes you forgive um, if the uh, editing and the uh, storyline um, is strong enough, like even the original King Kong, and we talked about this in that um, episode where we discussed the monster films, and yeah, yes, the no those models on the back screen projection weren't fooling anyone, but... Um, I don't know if it was just the uh, how they edited, but uh, you kind of forget, or maybe they just had the timing just right, but you... Uh, just get sort of lost in the in the fight, the tension, and uh, uh, you just uh, don't care as much about the graphics or lack of graphics. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, even just, I mean, I think the thing is for me with Ben-Hur, it, it's, I mean, look, the story was fine and it was interesting. You could follow it through to the end, but it's really just the epicness of this film that I love. Like the initial budget was $7 million and this is in 90, late 50s money. Yeah. Um, eventually the budget reached up to like $15 million. It was the costliest film ever produced up to that time. So when we ingested for inflation in today's money, it was like 150 million or so dollars. Although there's, I think, I think you know, other films easily top that now. Well, I'm thinking uh, when Titanic was made, uh, what was it, 200 million mm. when it started, mm. and that was a, a record. But like nowadays, because every uh, film has to be uh, a, a major Marvel blockbuster, that like 200 million for Titanic is just. Uh, uh, a dime a dozen these days. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I guess you just have to really have that strong belief in the story and what you did. I mean, how corny was Titanic, but 
people were really on board for it and obviously the whole concept of the ship sinking at the end and seeing the ship break in half that's half of half people were there for the love story and the other half were there to see the ship break in half well for me the main part of interest in titanic was just seeing the actual documentary footage at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, uh just uh because it like you just couldn't help but being uh, blown blown away by the fact that you could send cameras down to these depths, uh, like where people aren't mortally supposed to be able to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. Yes, how they sort of integrated what James Cameron was actually going through is his own interests with the Titanic. And I suppose the people that made this film, um, you know, obviously like with a lot of these epic films, the original director was supposed to be somebody else and William Wyler got involved. Even Stephen Boyd, who was in the film The Second Male Lead, he was supposed to be – there were sort of like overtures that he was supposed to play – um, the character that he played as like a spurned homosexual lover. And there's always all these like little backstories in these films. Um, the script, the final script for this film was like 230 pages and it did off, obviously differ from the 1925 silent film, which um, followed a, oh, that was young master Odie, the older Dutch hound. Yes, so doing the signature Dax and uh, ear flickety flick flick. Yeah, <laughs> I say Dachshund, um, but um, it's actually Dachshund, is it? Uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah like Dachshund, Dachshund, Dachshund. Well, because it's a German name, so I, I'm probably obviously saying it wrong, but they're so cute. Yeah. Um, back to Ben-Hur. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I feel like they could have gotten away with it because, like, let's face it, most people would have been then and now would have been there for the chariot race. And, like, you could have just, uh, like, compressed everything. Like, basically, the whole film of, uh, before and after is uh, putting it to, towards the chariot race and uh, you could uh, cut a lot of time. Well, some other people that were involved in being cast as Ben Hur before Charlton Heston accepted it. And Charlton Heston was such a workhorse, like there's no way he would have not accepted it on the basis of how much work you'd have to do. Um, obviously, Burt Lancaster, who was well known for different epic pictures at that time. Uh, a younger Paul Newman um, was interested in it. And then there's like a rumour that he didn't want to wear their costume showing off his legs or something like that, whether that's true. Marlon Brando, Rock Hudson, Jeffrey Horn and Leslie Nielsen, who I absolutely love. Well, if legs were the problem, Errol Flynn, I guess, would have been uh, up to the role. Or if he was – was he still alive at that time? I can't remember. Oh, 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 I think he was on his – if he was, he was on his last legs for sure. Uh, yes, but uh, if uh, considering that uh, we know um, uh, most of his signature roles involved him um, with um, quite high leggings, uh, that wouldn't have been a problem for him. Yeah. So, um, but really, the the main uh, <laughs> the main I've issue- thrown your concentration <laughs> with uh, talking about Errol Flynn's legs. I just think how sick Errol Flynn was before he died. I always feel a bit sorry. And considering he was a, you know, he was a compatriot of ours from Tasmania. Well, we're not from Tasmania, but he was. Oh, there's a little bit of padding going around the area as well with little, little. Um, this one's Coco, not Odie. She's a little girl. She's a, a chocolate one. Chocolate. Yeah, you probably can't hear her footsteps on the microphone, yeah. but yeah, um, uh, she's inspecting our um, setup. Uh, yeah, and uh, it wouldn't be the first time she's chewed something electric, so I'll keep an <laughs> eye on her. Um, but look, the film was quite well received, as a lot of these epics were. Um, the costumes, the production design, many Academy Awards were nominated for this film. Um, just the sheer editing of it, um, the 
the, the making of the sets, the dismantling of the sets, the hurting of the animals, the shooting in Italy, the shooting in the US, um, and the musical score as well was one of the longest musical scores ever scored for a film. Apparently, the recording session stretched over 72 hours. And actually, uh, I'm probably going to say this gentleman's name wrong. Uh, Miklos Rosa uh, was the um, person that scored the film, and he did... Um, he did actually win the Academy Award for that. So um, he won his third Academy Award for this score. And I mean, the music was opulent. Everything was. The Chariot Race, which is, um, it, it, well, it was sort of a pioneering thing at that point, wasn't it? It was um, composed of primarily close-up shots and median shots. But even the way they disciplined the horses, how they were able to design, I just thought it was like, unbelievably well done the way they did it. And there was one spot where Charlton Heston almost fell off his um, his chariot, which was actually a, a real accident that almost happened. Yeah. The, like, there were so many um, risks that um, and uh, deadly situations that could happen on set back then that just wouldn't be allowed now. I, I know, I can't believe, like, half the stuff that the actors were doing back then, both Stephen and Charlton. The chariot scene took five weeks spread over three months to film, and that part of the film alone cost a million dollars. And I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe you'll disagree with me, but I'm almost certain that, that uh, how the chariot race was staged greatly influenced the car race in Greece uh, what, yeah. uh, 20, yep. 30 years later. Yeah, actually, even, I can see. <laughs> even, with the, um, even with the wheel spikes. Yes. Actually, now you think of it, I... Oh, okay. I didn't realise that was that had been influenced by that, but that makes complete now, sense. Now I have an idea for a YouTube video. You had the Spartacus chariot race, but instead you have the track of Grease Lightning playing <laughs> over it. <laughs> so uh, this film also sort of paved the way for uh, like a massive marketing effort and also a lot of merchandise that came out with the film at the same time. Um, had a very decent box office in the U.M. and, in fact, saved MGM from a bit of a financial disaster because it did recoup all of its money and then a heck of a lot more. So, Economically, I'd have thought maybe it would have been better to get um, Billy Wilder to do tw 20 or 30 um, uh, smaller-scale film noirs for, uh, mm. for that, what that budget would have covered and probably would have got better profit overall. Who knows, maybe... Um, uh, piece by piece but yeah sometimes a big gamble does pay off and unfortunately this one did it did yeah so swept the academy awards best picture best director best actor in a leading role best actor in a supporting role we had art direction cinematography which robert certes did a brilliant job on costume design film editing i mean just the the chariot race alone would have won that sound recording music score yeah, Golden Globe Awards as well. So, you know, Ben-Hur's just one of those films. If you're interested in film, even if you're a young person, it is something that you do need to watch because so many of what people are able to do now was done off the basis of that film and how they did it from editing to production design. Yeah, well, people um, like friends and family often ask me, like, if I'm, why I'm so into, like, older books or films. And I'm like, well, I have an... Uh, a pretty archaeology like mm. state of mind and like that's how just how I think I want to keep um sort of 
digging between like if I like something, then I want to find out about the things the those actors and filmmakers and writers uh, took inspiration from, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So yeah. it's that mentality that uh, finding that linkage between um, each creation. Definitely. So we're going to go on to a film that was made really not that long after um, Spartacus. 1960. I remember seeing this one as a kid, a big Tony Curtis fan. Tony Curtis is in this film. So Thracian Spartacus was born and again, born and raised a, raised a slave. So unlike Ben-Hur, who went into slavery, this person always was a slave. And um, this person was actually, like this character, was based on a real person. Based on a real person. He rebels against the atrocities that the slave owners inflict on him and people like him. Um, and then things change in his life when he is sold to a gladiator trainer. And then the fun, or if you want to call it that, really kicks off. We have a absolute marquee cast in this film. Now, Stanley Kubrick directed this film. I'm probably someone that loves film that's not really into Stanley Kubrick. This is probably the only film of his that I like. I just don't get his stuff and I don't want to get it. And that's fine. That's okay. Um, but he did a brilliant job on this film. Yeah. Well, I've seen a, uh, like most people know him for a lot of his, uh, more, uh, emotionally complex, um, the storylines are often, uh, like space Odyssey and stuff set in much more, um, uh, lavish well, places. Well, you liked Barry Lyndon, didn't you? Yeah, well, uh, Barry, like, uh, Kubrick was the type that tried to do a, a different, um, a, be almost a completely new artist um, each time he mm, did something. That's and true, yeah. Al- and he was almost like Picasso in that sense because uh, Picasso, like, he uh, every 10 years or so, he seemed to try and really break with what he was doing. Yes. Uh, so, yes, I'm, uh, I'm probably uh, one of the few people that would use Picasso and Kubrick in the same mm. sentence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like uh, uh, Spartacus is uh, unique in uh, Kubrick's career because it's about the only film here where he didn't have complete control. That's right. Yeah, he was more like a just a working director hired to come in and direct it because uh, there was another director attached to it before him, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, like you, you wonder how that um that keeps happening. Like it, it was the same thing in Gone with the Wind, and like just how, why do why would you make a life harder than it has to be? The, yeah, def- well, so we had so Kirk Douglas, who I understand had wanted to be involved in Ben Hur as well, and he wasn't cast in that film, so he made a beeline for this film and said, "I want to be in the next big epic that comes out." The great Laurence Olivier is in this. Jean's the beautiful Jean Simmons, Charles Lawton, who I love, Peter Ustinov, John Gavin from Psycho, and then uh, Tony Curtis, one of my favourites. So this one was a Universal Pictures production. So the interesting thing about this screenplay was that Dalton Trumbo was one of the writers of um, the screenplay. They eventually came out, and for those people that love film, he was one of the people that was targeted for the communist activities in Hollywood and blackballed and a whole lot of other things. So... Actually, I just realised that we have an interesting crossover here. From with Ben Hur, we have William Wyler, who directed Roman Holiday, and mm-hmm. Trombo wrote the script for Roman Holiday as well. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, he um, Dalton Trombo actually wrote a lot of very well-known films. Um, so obviously, he wrote off based off the book Spartacus by Howard East. So. Let's just go through and have a look at the time. So Anthony Mann was the original um, director 
of the film. So Kirk Douglas, who actually was involved in producing the film, actually had him removed. Um, And Kubrick sort of had directed a few smaller projects, I believed, and Douglas had worked with him before and he brought him in. So that's what Matt was saying. It was one of the movies that it was more like a job for him and he came in and he did a brilliant job with it. I kind of that's the film of his I like because it was just a job to him. I, I guess because I don't really get where he's coming from in a lot of his films, you know. Earlier in his career, there were a couple of um, sort of spy noir thrillers he did, which I, I've liked very much, and I have a feeling you would too, um, based okay. on how you've reacted to um, some of our. It was the it was a clockwork orange. I just I didn't get it. I didn't want to get it. I just yeah. Well, um, I uh, haven't seen that yet, although from what, what I understand, I'll have to um, – uh, anything I need to do involving toothpicks do before I see the movie, otherwise I'll be afraid of them. <laughs> oh, yes, that are, yeah. I, I actually saw that film when I was living in London and they were playing it at a local sort of art house cinema near where I was living, actually in Leytonstone, Alfred Hitchcock's old stomping ground. And uh, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll go and see Clockwork Orange. I've heard a lot, and I just hated it. It's, and there's certain film directors today. I just I've seen one of their films, and I refu- I'll never again see anything else they did. Although the films have been critically loved, it's just like I need you to get to the point of what you're doing. And if you're not going to get to the point, then you know uh, maybe I'll go to sleep. Yeah, well, it's the alter effect. If um, uh, if you love a certain director's work, um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, there's only uh, there's only a certain um, type of person you'll go who go for it. Um, some can handle the middle ground, um, and sometimes it's a question of whose style goes to what project. Like I won't talk about um, which person, um, uh, but like uh, there was a film released about four years ago, a massive success that I really, really loved, uh, and because of the director, I was actually excited to see uh, another one a few years later when they were friends, and I mm-hmm. and like it felt like a very long two and a half hours for that other film, even though I uh, had previously loved the director's work so much. Yeah, I so think... So sometimes a storyline um, yeah. uh, with the right director can work really well. But, yeah, that's yeah. that's very true. Um, yeah, I just uh, just after that, and I, I think I've, tri- I've tried watching The Shining, I've tried watching 2001 A Space Odyssey because I'm sort of interested in other issues to do with that film, which we won't go into now. I think you'd love Barry Lyndon very yeah, much. Uh, maybe, maybe some of his other – I understand what a trailblazer he was and the use of reprojection and all that sort of stuff, um, but there are just certain – but there's other sort of modern filmmakers I'm just like, yeah, I just don't get – I just don't get – like maybe Tim Burton as well, people like that who are extremely talented, but I just don't really get what they're going for. I like a bit more sort of in-your-face trash, so – you know, like, you know, things like Top Gun and all that. So in terms of modern films, what they can do, I'm just a bit more straight down the line. So interestingly enough, like with Spartacus, like coming back to Spartacus, like Yul Brynner at the same time was planning his own Spartacus with another company, United Artists. Is to direct it or act in it? Um, like just, I guess, I guess um, he, he wanted to play – uh, Spartacus himself, which he probably would have done a good job with, mm. but um, Dalton Trumbo actually managed to complete the screenplay really fast and Universal um, and Douglas, they managed to get in and start making their film. So I think you'll obviously dropped it by that point. Um, so just going through um, 
just how the, the, the film was shot as well. I mean, Stanley Kubrick was only 30 when he made this film. So he had directed four feature films previously, one that had Douglas in it, Paths of Glory, which I haven't seen. Okay, I'm, st- I'm starting to feel a bit um, behind in my um, accomplishments at the moment. <laughs> I really, I wouldn't, because I see little Harry and he's a great accomplishment. Yeah. Oh, oh! I that I that I uh, completely <laughs> agree with? <laughs> completely agree on it. It's more yeah. professionally. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, look, it you know the, this film is a beautiful looking film. It is um, you know the battle scenes were actually shot outside of Madrid. There were like thousands of extras used in this, and um, you know this film is very famous for the I am. Spartacus moment where which has been parodied in a few memes and uh, Facebook posts yeah and even by politicians over in the US who shout I am Spartacus in the US Congress but uh, apparently during the um, shooting of course Stanley Kubrick and Trumbo did fight a lot over the screenplay and uh, Kubrick was saying that he didn't feel like Spartacus was a rounded enough character. He didn't have enough faults or which maybe they would do that now. Maybe the modern version of the film that they did not too long ago would have that now. But at the time it's more of a rollicking story of his life and like went to see Baz Luhrmann's Elvis last night. And, um, that was kind of what that film was like. They kind of blamed all of the issues and the quirks on the bad guy in the film, which was Colonel Parker, played by Tom Hanks. And they kind of just let Elvis alone and let Elvis be this talented, amazing person who was just a bit too vulnerable and stuff for his own good. And they kind of just let the screenplay blame the Colonel for everything that sort of happened to him, which kind of worked because I don't think anybody wants to see Elvis in a bad light. So that in these big sort of biblical effort, uh, you know, films of the time, uh, I think that's what they were going for. Well, there is a thing to be said about the strength of villains, um, but yeah, definitely in um, epics like this when it's almost like um, watching a, a football match where, and it's, Actually, it's a similar experience. Really, you're mm. you're sitting uh, at the uh, at your, your uh, viewing point for like two, three, or more hours, and you're seeing this great uh, clash uh, of wills. And for stories like that, where really you're there for the, um, you're not so much there for a moral complexity. So mm. it doesn't matter as much if you have. Um, uh, less development of one side or the other. Uh, mm. It's more of an excuse to um, uh, sort of just to uh, pitch the wills against each other and see what happens. Yeah. And so it is kind of like a sports game. Yeah, it really is. And look, there were, you know, like with every film that gets released, there's always controversies. And apparently at the time, you know, in the gladiator, gladiator school that Spartacus attends when he's bought, uh, there were different racial groups in the, in the, in the school and certain theatre-goers and politicians didn't like that, but that harkens back to other issues to do with racial mixing and things like that. So there's always some sort of As far as the Roman Empire, there was there, there were actually um, African citizens of Rome. I'm not sure if I'm at, because this is just at the period at the end of the Roman Republic before it went on into um, the imperial period where they expanded towards... I think they had started to do military activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they had the Punic Wars. So there have been some military activity in Africa. Like, this is pro- probably wasn't at the top of Donald Trumbo's mind yeah. when he was writing the script. Um, but, either, yeah, anyway, the 
that racial element is uh, less important historically. What is a big deal, and it is a lot more people do know it now, but uh, it does has to be have to be mentioned uh, that one historical anomaly of that film is that gladiators were not fought to the death. They were extremely valuable mm. um, entertainers. Uh, yeah, they? well, yeah, they were extremely uh, valuable and ex- uh, expensive to train. Um, professional athletes really they weren't mm-hmm. warriors they were basically um a professional type, wrestlers <laughs> a type of professional wrestler it would be like um it would be like buying two formula one cars and race them to crash into to each, each other, other yeah. the way the uh, film portrays them so uh, that in that sense the storyline was playing on a a, a major historical um assum- a historical assumption which was probably based on 19th century uh, fiction. Uh, and I suppose just taking artistic license for the story, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. So, like, at the time, it did work for a great a great storyline and great entertainment, but, like, I think, uh, yeah, you, like, people are just too educated on the subject nowadays that you wouldn't get away with a, a, an anomaly like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, one good thing that happened with uh, Spartacus is that they did in 1991 like a full restoration of the film. So certain scenes, big fight scenes that had been cut out, the pr- certain prints were faded. So they were actually able to do that. But, of course, you know, even Steven Spielberg was involved in the effort to fully restore the film. But, of course, Kubrick decided that this was the one film of his he wanted to disown. He didn't want to disown Eyes Wide Shut when it came out, but he wants to disown. <laughs> so he, I think Stanley Kubrick was one of these people that always had to be contrary to popular opinion. Well, I guess it's a bit hard when you're um, uh, a director and you're such in the public eye and, like, you have... Um limited control over things once they're out of your hands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I know he's just, you know, I mean, and look, very eccentric artists like that are always going to be sort of contrary to, to popular opinion. Um, like I'm trying to remember Mm -hmm. what it was, but he had this weird reason for not wanting, liking to fly, which, um, yeah, uh, like uh, it it wasn't to do with a, a fear of mortality or anything. It was like something to do with, um, how, uh, with, um, the control of refueling or something. Yeah. <laughs> he just was a very eccentric character and his whole family said that. And obviously that came out in his films. He was a little bit like, I guess one of your heroes, Orson Welles, like it's my way or the highway type thing. So they knew what they wanted to do and they wanted to get it done. And look, the film was very well received as well. Uh, obviously Kirk Douglas did a great job in the film. The film is quite emotional. How, in how some did areas. you find um, Kirk Douglas's performance? Because it, he was kind of very stern the whole time. It, it's like yeah, it's like there's it's kind like of one speed. Sort yes, of thing. It, it it was like um, uh, yeah, like he was a like that a certain uh, he had that thing hidden within him, yeah. and you keep waiting for it to be revealed. Uh, yeah. But no, it's always that same face of granite. Yeah, I, that was. I mean, he did have that very sort of like chosen chin anyway, which his son has as well. But He'd I th- have been a great TV detective, I think, uh, yeah. Kirk Douglas. Well, his son started his career like on the streets of San Francisco, which was a detective show before he went into film. But I think he and his son sort of, they, as Chuck Norris said, I know the sort of characters I want to play and I just go and play them. 
doesn't matter what movie it is. And there are certain actors who are really good at playing different versions of themselves and it really entertains the audience. Like Tom Cruise is a great one for that. It's not that they can't do character acting and stuff, but the audience to a certain degree wants to see them in the film too. So they're famous for acting doing different versions of themselves, basically. I know this is a sensitive topic for you, mm-hmm. but uh, Robert De Niro Robert De Niro was certainly in the similar uh, way. Yeah, and Al Pacino, and even people like Dustin Hoffman and stuff. Um, I mean, one of the last, well, he I guess he technically still is a character actor, but someone that's kind of being erased a bit now, Kevin Spacey, he, he to me was one of the last really genuinely good character actors um, obviously, unfortunately, now he's not really doing any acting, but that's something. I to think do he's with done him. a couple of minor projects, and yeah, I mean, like yeah. a, a. I don't want to get too far mm. into this, but as mm. far as I can tell, what uh, Hoffman is accused mm. of compared to Spacey is miles apart. But yeah, yeah, that's um. But I, I probably prefer to let those discussions yeah. be left to TMZ and stuff. Yeah, de- <laughs> definitely. But yeah, it's just you have you know actors who are famous for their characters and then actors are famous who are famous for themselves. And I think Kirk Douglas was one of the actors who was famous for being himself because the audience wanted to see him and that's totally fine. A lot of those, like Charlton Heston, I was watching him on, you know, the Colby's, the soap he did in the 80s. It's not that much removed from how he was in Ben-Hur. So, um, but just two films like if you're interested in learning a bit more about epic Hollywood, the golden, the last sort of before we got into the 60s and some of the psychedelic films and stuff that were going on then um, and obviously the cultural movement that shifted in the 60s, like this, these two films were sort of the last bastion of the, you know, of the very conservative sort of cultural films, biblical epics that they made then. I mean, yes, they did make films, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but not not on akin, not on par with these films. Yeah, well, they did continue to make some epics now and then, mm-hmm. but um, I, for one thing, I think uh, the accounts department did catch up with the, the producers and were like, uh, look, uh, mm. as glamorous as, as it is to have these massive musicals and battle epics, even the ones that are really successful, if you spend that much, the profit isn't that good. That even yep. with um, Hitchcock and The Birds and Psycho, mm. like he had mm. two great hits, one after the other, Psycho and then The Birds. But because Psycho was basically a glorified um, TV a, a, show, yeah. yeah, a glorified TV set uh, yeah. with just a couple of couple of rooms and a lo- mm. and a hanging light bulb versus Black The Birds, yep. yeah, versus The Birds, which was in full color with. Uh, Huge special effects mm-hmm. and very complex color cinematography and and double shooting of birds and everything. Even though it was a hit, mm-hmm. uh, the profit was that much uh, less. And look, it's a, a bit of a, a touchy thing when you get into talking about money with films, but I kind of have a healthy respect for tying in the economic motive because to an extent, mm. um, money and going from that, the ticket office it, it is yeah. kind of like um a, a democratic election process where the where the public vote public with vote with their, wa- with their wallet yeah. and so i think part of the strength of a lot of films is when you um do have an honest uh, uh, interest in the in the public that way and so i am willing to consider it as a valid way to think of um and even as Hitchcock called it, the uh, kind of the ethics of using other people's money because yeah, you are definitely. you are effectively putting huge amounts of livelihood on the mm-hmm. line. Sometimes less is more. 
Yes. Yeah. I guess you probably could have summed all that last five minutes into that <laughs> sentence. Guys, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We had a lot of fun uh, talking about these films and it's been a fun day of podcasting and visiting a different area of Melbourne and coming and visiting Matt and his lovely family. So in the meantime, as always, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and have a good one. See you soon. <laughs>